Well, hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Uh, my name is Will Stockdale. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry to State. And normally I would say here with my very good friend, Robert Hassler, comms director. Robert is not able to uh, be with us today as we record uh, on Wednesday night. In fact, he's actually doing other ministry work. He is leading a Bible study um, with some other people around DC. And so uh, our thoughts are with him as he's out there serving. But I am very excited to have a very special guest, a very good friend on the show with me today to talk about commons and not just talk about commons, but um, talk about some of the ideas that commons tries to communicate to interns on the Hill. I've shared this before, but commons is ministry to state's summer intern program. So every summer we try to get together with a group of interns who work in various government agencies or uh, house or Senate offices on the Hill and provide them with food and time of fellowship. And then to hear from someone who's a little further along the road. And this year, the theme was wisdom. And so I have with me, Will Derrick, who is currently a junior LA in, uh, in the house. He works for a member from Utah. Uh, Will is a, well, could, I almost want to say bi-coastal uh, individual in that uh, <laughs> what, whatever Gulf Coast side you want to attribute to Texas, uh, you have his time split between the uh, great Lone Star State that is Texas and then spending uh, formative years in California, but returning to the great state of Texas to attend Rice University. And then after interning on the Hill, he then returned to the Hill to work here full time. I will say a point of contention, as I mentioned this um, Texas-California split that he kind of masters. I mean, it's tough. That's a tough thing to do. Certain collegiate loyalty lies with the University of Texas, which you did not attend but I see you wear University of Texas gear far more often than Rice gear. And I thought this would be a good time before we get into the, the oh, meet wow. for, just to explain your thoughts. Uh, defend yourself is basically what, what I have. Defend here. the University of Texas? Your adherence to their principles and, you know. Well, that I would say that adhering to loyalty for a sporting team a, a sports team you can see how how out of touch i am with sports that i just referred to something as a sporting team um but i just i don't think you can say that i adhere to their principles university of texas austin uh, i was born in the austin area grew up in the area of vince young and colt mccoy and those were glorious glorious years to grow up uh, university of texas longhorn football fan uh, and it's been rougher since then, but I think by and large, it is hard for that love to leave uh, after all those years. I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but I wore, I had two identical Texas Longhorn hoodies that were worn alternately every day for two years of my life in middle school after going to California and that was my way of reminding the entire world that I was a Texan through and through, uh, especially when uh, little little Will did not have a cowboy hat back in the day. Well, I appreciate you distancing yourself from the principles of that school. As an Aggie, I am forced to kind of do something of an inquisition to anybody that I think might <laughs> be adhering. So no, that's great. And I, I know that you you love their sports and, and uh, man, I loved them in high school as well. So uh, I that Rose Bowl game in 2005 was just insane. So it's not a um, better game. 
but uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. So I've, I have digressed us, but I did want to bring on Will as he uh, came to Commons a few weeks ago and shared some of his thoughts on Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, uh, that is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, um, with with these interns. And I, I heard that it was very well received and that there was a lot of great things that were shared and um, some nice connections made. And so what I wanted to do was just kind of to ask um, Will uh, on this um podcast to share some of his thoughts and, and things that he had communicated to them and hopefully just kind of give a little bit of a taste of what we what we try to accomplish at Commons. So, well, I just want to kick it over to you and say, what are, what are some of the things that you were hoping to share and uh, communicate that evening? Yeah, I think by and large, it was interesting for me to share because I had been in their shoes as an intern, really not that long before them. And I had interned in DC and been a part of the Commons program as an intern in DC um, just a few years ago um, before moving up here. Uh, It was really interesting to kind of see the roles reversed in that way and realize that by and large, uh, there's not that much of a difference between uh, myself and all of the students who are taking part in it. And what I was able to contribute to the conversation I was hoping would be just a tad bit more experienced. It's not like I have uh, superb insight and wisdom compared to them. I've just got a few years, um, but certainly been working in uh, the realm of government for just a tad bit and hopefully could just share some stories and shed some light and perhaps provide some case studies. Um, And there's there's a great book um, written by a former governor um, that I read recently and by and large, it didn't shed any specifically wonderful new light on what it looked like to have a Christian presence in the realm of government. But what it was able to contribute was uh, case, case studies, essentially, and rooting things and showing examples and helping you learn in a way that made it feel real and tangible, like there's an actual way to step into that world uh, in, a, in a Christian sense. Uh, so that was what I was hoping to encourage them with. Um, so I guess by and large, we're starting with the, the principle of trying to get into the topic of uh, wisdom by way of looking at what does it look like to work in, uh, in a normal office setting, in a day-to-day setting, in a way that reflects Christ-likeness well. Uh, what does it look like for that rootedness, uh, you know, planted by streams of living water that we see in Proverbs um, to then... Uh, connect to the way that we work day in and day out. By and large, I think we start with looking at performance. uh, And before we even get there, we've got to take like a couple steps back. And we've got to take a step back to looking at um, first and foremost is uh, what kind of attitudes are we coming to work with? And so I started off um, with discussing kind of the attitude that I think um, most closely Uh, defines who Christ is, that being uh, humility. And so I I just pulled up Philippians um, with them and and read the uh, passage from Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, um, and really trying to indicate that if Christ can step into this world with humility, then we should try to be reflective of that. Um, And it it, it continued past that, but that was essentially the starting point by which the, the conversation started. Yeah. How have you, I mean, 
that's such a, a big one. And uh, DC is, is such a competitive place and that's not always bad. There's a lot of good that happens. So you get a lot of sharpening that happens between people in order to get things done. So there's, there's good in that, but um, learning how to be humble can be a little uh, fear threatening at first. There, there's a concern there that yeah. if I'm humble, then maybe I have to give things up. And I didn't know if maybe that was something that um, you were able to kind of describe humility in such a way that it didn't um, like you could see the positives and, and there is an admission that you do have to yeah. kind of surrender some things when you, when you, uh, there was at the end of the conversation, there was, there's a couple of questions that kind of touched on that. And one being, you know, setting aside your, your love for work and the, the attitude that comes with recognizing that your work isn't going to fill you up uh, and saying, I, this is by no means, an admission that I don't like my job, that I don't enjoy it, that I don't want to be prosperous in it. But I think having the humility to recognize that it's, uh, that I'm not going to be perfect in it. I do not need to strive for perfection actually leads me to perform even better and to do even better uh, than others. Um, And this is where kind of the the case study side came in and, and we can get into that. But then there was the flip side and there was the conversation of, are there instances where that humility has had to play itself out in a, in a real way. Um, and I, I, you mentioned the, the office that I'm currently in, uh, but that I did not start with a member from Utah. I started with a member from Texas. Um, and as that was shaping up and as I was in that role for quite a while, there were instances, there's one particular instance where somebody who was uh, below me, in, in rank essentially ascended to the same level of me and in terms of responsibilities was doing things beyond what I was doing. And it all happened very quickly. And there was a very clear moment in my mind where I needed to make the decision about whether or not this was going to really bother me and having the humility to recognize that he was put in that position because he was actually the best equipped to do it. I could make a stink and, and talk about how I deserved what he was doing and deserved the responsibilities that he was given. And that would have been, you know, by the terms of what the world would expect, completely appropriate, actually. Um, but in terms of what was actually going to help the office function well, it was seeding that um, and allowing the office to keep functioning with him in that role. Uh, that helped, I think, everybody move forward in that situation better. That, that sounds like that's connected to your earlier point about taking a few steps back to humility is also taking steps back and saying, all right, what's the actual mission here? Is it, is it my own success and accomplishment or is it that of the entire office and, and the member, which can be an easy, it sounds obvious, right? I mean, they elected the member, yeah. but it's an easy thing to forget. And we forget that in every profession, it's not just the Hill. I mean, that's, that's like a universal thing. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, and that, I can get into a whole spiel about the way in which the Hill functions and the way in which congressional offices function and what it feels like to be a staffer at times, your level of connection to the member, your level of connection to the state. Um, Even though I'm from Texas, I was not from that district and I'm not from Utah. And so there, there's a number of ways in which that dynamic can apply. Um, But the reason why, I had wanted to step back to uh, that kind of attitude aspect of humility 
was like you were saying that plays in so much to then desire. And uh, if we have the humility to recognize uh, that what we are doing here is not about ourselves and it's not about filling ourselves up. It's about another purpose that's going to shape our desire. That's going to shape the way that we function um, and had pulled out a verse that has been really instrumental for me in DC, uh, which was Jeremiah two thirteen. Uh, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living, living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And in the way in which desire is shaped by those attitudes, there's a lot of ways in which DC and the desire to be self-seeking can create these cisterns where we look towards ourselves, towards other things, rather than looking towards Christ. Uh, and there's obviously the famous quote that the human heart is an idol factory and it feels like DC throws everything into overdrive and helps that, that idol factory pump, pump it out even faster. Um, so that was essentially where that conversation went. And that's great. I will, I would love to get to at the end, the, um, the, uh, a sense of repair that is, um, Mm. We, we do want to have good men and women working in government. Uh, Ministry State wants to care for and serve men and women who are serving in government. And with that being the case, is we're called to you know guard our hearts. And what is it? Profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. And yet um, we want good and just laws and we want people to have clean water and all of these things. And so what does it look like for the things that you're describing? Um, humility and um, idols <clears throat> or, you know, true worship um, and, and your work, how, how do you repair that with the gospel? But before we get there at the end, I did want to mm -hmm. ask, you mentioned case studies. And so I was curious, what are some of yeah. the case studies you were talking about? Oh, that that's really, that's, there's a lot. And I think for people who don't know my timeline and this was not clear from the brief bio that you gave, I came up to DC in January of 2020 and started as a full-time staffer on the Hill in February, less than a month before the pandemic really took hold. And for me, what that's meant over the last year and a half is that there have been a million different instances where one could have said that was once in a lifetime. And for that reason, it's been a really exceptional experience in a lot of ways. And at the same time, it has required a lot of reflection to allow some of those stories to really sink in. I mentioned the one of uh, that the, the kind of internal conflict of the office requiring humility. Um, and I think uh, in other instances, that has been clear as well. And the main one that really came to mind that I mentioned and discussed in depth was one where, and for the sake of not getting into the politics of it all, I'll refrain from going too far into detail, but essentially there was a very controversial issue that our office was considering whether or not to be supportive of. And there was a specific measure that our office wanted to consider. And I was just in this discussion, not because I was actually asked to be, but because I had just been promoted 
to a new position where I had my first taste of being back in the legislative office and my cubicle was right next to the legislative directors. And so I was just hearing it in the background. And this, this discussion was happening maybe a week after I had just been promoted. And this goes back to the discussion of humility, that attitude leading to different desires. And I was in this position of feeling as though I needed to prove my worth, prove the fact that I was capable of doing this and uh, really step into this role, show that I was smart, capable person of contributing to this and that I was dead right on this. And so I kept inserting myself into the discussion, kept talking with the legislative director, sitting at their little chair that they had in their cubicle space, having these long discussions with them. And we're on maybe the third or fourth discussion throughout the day and sitting there. And she asks one particular question to the point where it just becomes so clear for the first time. And it clicks like, uh, like a light that I am dead wrong. I am so, 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 so wrong. And it's this recognition that I've just wasted this person's entire day, uh, just going on a complete spiel. And they, they were so gracious about it when I, you know, acknowledged the fact that I had screwed up and said they were appreciative of having a sounding board to go off of and all this stuff. Um, but by and large, that was really derived from this feeling of, I need to be able to step in, prove myself, prove my worth, rather, rather than just stepping back. And again, having the humility to recognize it's not all about me. And sometimes the best thing for me to do is to be quiet. And that's a good way to actually contribute to the functioning of the office in a lot of ways. Let the discussion continue and don't feel the need to insert yourself in every little thing. I love the, uh, that's, thanks for sharing that story. I mean, that's, um, there's a great Mark Twain adage, uh, better to keep your mouth closed and have people assume you're an idiot than to open it and remove all doubt. There has, there has been many a time in my life where I (laughs) have felt that I have lived out that adage. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I, I want to go back to that idea of, um, repair with the gospel and how the gospel can shape your work, including humility and, um, owning mistakes, but also excellence. I mean, you know, doing work excellently and well and seeking to do stuff. How do you balance that drive, um, and desire to, to, to achieve with, you know, gospel truth of, um, like you mentioned, Philippians two, he did not consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped. How, how do you hold those in balance? Yeah. And for me coming this from a particular perspective of, uh, perfectionism, legalism, there's been a lot of instances where there's been that desire to achieve that in the workspace that has not been healthy. And so I think the freedom of the gospel is in saying that perfection is desirable and excellence is desirable, but it, in, it is not where your worth and your satisfaction is going to come. It's not achievable uh, in this world. And there have been instances, especially in the difficulties of that year and a half that I've been on the hill where there were moments where in the midst of all the craziness that had thrown me into uh, a particular 
spot of uh, essentially into a mental space where I felt I needed to achieve perfection to succeed. And I was unable to, and that created a striving in me where I was not able to be a contributor to the team in that moment. And so there's a lot of ways in which the freedom of the gospel to uh, do your best, but with the acknowledgement that the results are not what are going to dictate whether or not you are loved in the eyes of uh, our father. That is what I think sets it apart. Um, I can bring up the specific instance again in the interest of making this as much like a case study as possible or a collection of case studies. Um, there was a particular week, which was when that big storm in February hit Texas and at the time working for a Texas member and that threw our office into a real spiral and I got thrown into such a fit and part of it was you know my grandparents and some of my fam other family members living in Texas at the time and realizing that I there was not everything not all the communication in our office was going perfectly at the time and it threw me into this perfectionist space of needing to make sure that everything every little thing that I was doing was being done correctly. And it was unachievable. And it was a pressure of trying to make sure that every single thing going on in the congressman's district was going perfectly. And that was simply not achievable for me or for anyone in the office. And in those instances, it is really difficult to allow God to be sovereign, to recognize that you can't be perfect and recognize that he's in control of the outcome, whatever it, whatever it may be. Um, and that's been especially difficult to say in the last year and a half where that is in the midst of pandemics and really bad uh, situations politically, uh, riots, winter freezes, uh, injustices uh, with a lot of other issues and obviously social justice and racial justice being a particular topic and, and pain point for a great number of people across the country. It is tough to sit back and allow God to be sovereign and to allow yourself to not feel the pressure of fixing every little facet of our broken world. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, and I know that there are demands and a lot of people feel like, um, in your role, you should be able to fix that. Uh, and, and there's a, a need again to kind of double trust God on that, not only with knowing your own place and then what, but what other people might, uh, constituents might put expectations on. But um, I did want to ask a couple of things before we, before we wrap up, what is one of the things that I miss and that COVID has done is limit access to the Hill. And so getting to be in offices and see life. So what's, what's life like on the Hill right now? What have been some of your favorite things um, about the house office buildings of late. Yeah, I have seen the house office buildings at a number of states now. I got to visit uh, when I was an intern. I was not an intern on the Hill when I was in DC and was with Commons back in 2018, but did visit. And that was an experience in and of itself, but then experienced it as an intern myself. Um, and then as a staffer, both before and after COVID, and it is just the weirdest place right now because you've got half of the folks masked up 
and half of the po- folks uh, are, you know, of different parties. And for a long time there, the only offices that were present on the Hill were Republican offices. And so it's like for the first time, people are starting to kind of tighten up in the halls and not be super open and free about talking about every little political thing. So it's almost like you're in that awkward pause moment of a bad first date for the entirety of uh, the work day when you're out in the halls and still trying to figure it out in a lot of ways and walking around used to seeing the familiar faces for the few staff members who are there in the buildings with you. Um, And then all of a sudden you're realizing there's a lot of new faces you haven't seen before and a lot of change. For example, I walked by this guy today and I went to school with him. I had several classes with him in college and I had no idea he was up on the hill and he did not recognize me. Uh, so it, it, is, it is my mission this next week to figure out who this guy is and, and what office he's in. Good luck. Godspeed. Go well. Uh, I, I, did, I also wanted to ask, about your job, like if you were to say, why should someone come to DC and work? What would you say are some of the things that you love most about getting to work in the house? And uh, what would you, what would you encourage other people who are in college? That is a great, a great, great question. And by and large, it is, uh, it, it is like a love hate relationship. And I think everyone will speak to this, but it is a pace and a job work environment where it is very fast and there are a lot of moving parts at any one given time. And that goes for, I think, every single position on the Hill. And the joys of that, I think, speak to the joy that you feel when you master something. And I like to cook a lot and I've been comparing it a little bit to cooking that when you're in the kitchen and you are cooking something, some dish that you know how to do, and you're doing a few different things at once, and you're in a groove, and you've got something in the oven, something on the stove, and you're, you're just doing it, and you've got a dinner party that's you've perfectly timed it out, and it all works. It is, it is euphoric. It is a similar way where if you get all of those moving parts to work perfectly, in your job and you can feel like you have that mastery over something, it is a genuinely super fun feeling. And I remember the first time that I got that high as a staffer, there was a distinct moment uh, and it was, it was really fun. And it was the first time that I really realized that what I was doing on the Hill and the work that I was doing could not just be meaningful, but it could be enjoyable on a day-to-day basis. Um, And I say love-hate because as much as there's those moments of mastery, there are those moments of feeling like you're not on top of everything. And so it's a fight, like I said, with acknowledging that I'm not going to achieve perfection. I'm not going to achieve perfect mastery, but by and large, it it can still be a fun experience even if you don't get to that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I love that idea. That cooking illustration is really is a fun one is a delicious a delicious Mm. metaphor uh and lastly if you were to encourage someone why they should attend commons next summer we're wrapping up for this summer if you're to say hey you should check out commons what what would be your just hypothetically speaking just hypothetically hypothetically speaking if i were to give a pitch 
Um, and I, I actually, I gave a pitch to the students that I was speaking to uh, back a few weeks ago without really being asked to. And by and large, it is because I cannot think of uh, another program that's really had as impactful, um, has been as impactful on my life as anything else that I've done. Um, and I can, I can speak to that in a number of different ways. But first and foremost, I graduated a semester early from college. And when I did that, it was kind of on a whim, didn't really know that I was able to do it super far ahead of time um, and wasn't sure where I was going to end up work-wise and had an opportunity to come up to DC um, and ended up living with somebody that I had met at Commons, um, felt comfortable moving up to DC because I knew of the Christian community that was available through ministry to state because of my time at Commons, have met some really meaningful people through, uh, through Commons in my life now and developed a new community here in DC, primarily through my time uh, with ministry to state in a, in a different Bible study. Um, it is really something where more than anything, it gave me a community, but it gave me the confidence to step into what can often feel like a very broken place in Washington, D.C., with the confidence uh, that I will be able to do it by God's grace um, with, uh, with success and representing him well. Um, again, with, with the community around me and with Christ empowering me to do so well. And I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm thankful for, you know, the leaders who uh, led this ministry as uh, before me and kind of passed it on. So um, I'm so glad. One of those guys who led it before you was a guy named Zach Barth. I don't know if you have I'm oh, sure yeah. you overlapped with him. Oh, yeah. Um, he was the guy who uh, was leading it during my time as an intern. He actually ended up at grad school at Rice. And I think he's probably wrapped up by now, but during my last year there, he popped over and, and we saw each other uh, in passing and, and got lunch with him and another student who was at Rice with me who did commons as well. And so there's, you know, there's longstanding relationships through what you guys are doing. And it's, it's more impactful than I think you guys realize in the moment. And even than I realized in the moment, again, I wouldn't be in DC. I wouldn't be, in the position I am now without the work of, of commons and ministry to state. Oh man. I appreciate that. Um, well, I, with that, I, I think I'll, I'll land the plane here. I appreciate that uh, ringing endorsement. So uh, I, we can't land the plane yet because I was promised Eisenhower talk. Oh, that's right. Oh my gosh. I didn't get to. So, so this is a true little, little background here. Uh, I have decided to choose the Pacific theater during world war II to be something I want to focus on and research and study mostly because of just, it's, it's such a unique, um, it, I'm not familiar with it. I'll say that. And I had family in, um, the Pacific theater and then MacArthur is there and MacArthur is just, just not as much of a glowing American hero as Eisenhower. Will has chosen mm. to be an Eisenhower fan. And so with mm -hmm. that, this is kind of an added bonus here at the end. Mm-hmm. What's your latest take on uh, General President Dwight D. Eisenhower? My general take is that I think I realized why I enjoyed the character of Eisenhower so much. Okay. And I think it's because 
of the connection it has to my own family. So my dad grew up on a farm in Iowa and he grew up and he was not the biggest kid. He was not the most athletic, but more than anything, he was known for being able to take anyone in a fight. And in his own description, it is not because of any physical attributes, but because he could take a punch more than anybody else could. And he would just keep grinding and keep going. He had some like real grit to him. And uh, by and large, I keep, I've said by and large on this podcast way too much. I think that's my nervous uh, political speak. I haven't noticed. But you've got, a, you've got Eisenhower, who was known for the same thing, where he, he ended up uh, winning, not winning, but in a draw in this legendary schoolyard fight as a kid uh, in, in Kansas and just could take a punch like nobody else, had more grit than anybody else. And that is the kind of attitude that is inspiring in a leader. And at the same time, that paired with a quiet humility that I think speaks to what kind of men we need in leadership now. Uh, and so I appreciate him as, as a character um, as much as I do as, you know, what he did as both general and president. Um, and I will say this, uh, and I think this is why I, I enjoy the idea of grit so much. I have grown up in situations where I have not had to develop much grit. And I, I would very much like to do so. And this speaks to, and this is me being extremely slow and getting back to a slight that you, you threw out at me at the very start, calling me bicoastal, which is a really nice way of saying coastal elitist. Oh my and you're gosh. Not, you're not wrong, but I'm, I'm working on it, Will. I'm working on getting some grit to me, trying to be more outdoorsy, trying to get get some uh get some dirt on my hands some grease on my hands uh but i think that's that's part of the fun of of being on the hill as well being in dc you're you're surrounded by a lot of self-starters people who work really hard and even if it's not grit and actual physical uh work it's it's you're in suits but it's it's a version of grit where you're you're stuck in suits and ties all day um so that's that's my spiel wrapping it all up Hook them horns, sick them bears, the whole life. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. It's time to end this. After that, that is that is as far as we will go. But hey, Will, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your uh, service to the kingdom and to uh, our government. Thank you for taking time to share wisdom with the interns and uh, sharing it here on the Will and Rob show. And so uh, what is your Twitter handle, though? Oh, gosh. I don't actually know my Twitter handle. I don't tweet. I just retweet stuff. You're probably happier that way. Uh, I I am not a social media buff. Uh, if people want to follow me, uh, they can just walk down East Capitol Street and that's how they can follow me. I'm oh, walking love on East Cap. I, yeah. I like that. Great street. Great street. Great view of the Capitol and, and you know all that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Stockdale Will and then at RD Hassler. And we look forward to being with y'all next week. 